Well, if you haven't already, please take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Uh, Today we're beginning a series uh, on the Ten Commandments, where we'll look at one commandment each Sunday, and we're going to look at uh, the preface once again. Uh, We'll read it, verse 6, and... Then look at the first commandment in verse 7. So let's give our attention to the hearing of God's word this morning. Deuteronomy 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, it's no surprise to hear that we live in an age of moral relativism, the belief that we are all free to invent our own moral codes and live as we see fit, the belief that uh, I have my truth, you have your truth, I have my understanding of what is right and wrong, you have your understanding of right and wrong, and, and that's, that's fine. It's what we know as moral relativism. But then I think it is surprising, while we live in an age of moral relativism, to to hear that in recent years a book full of rules has sold not only thousands but millions of copies. Uh, Surprising because we don't like being told what to do. We don't like rules very much. And so it is a bit of a surprise to to see that uh, a few years ago, a a book by Jordan Peterson uh, became a bestseller. The book's title is 12 Rules for Life, and it catapulted a formerly obscure clinical psychologist from Canada into the spotlight. So I think it's worth asking the question, why would a book full of rules be so popular in an age of moral relativism? How do we explain a book like that and its popularity? Among other things, I I think the popularity of Peterson's 12 Rules for Life points to the undeniable void that appears in the absence of any kind of moral direction. And something's got to fill that moral void. And although we are a stiff-necked and stubborn people who don't like being told what to do, at the same time, we are like sheep without a shepherd, in need of someone to lead us, even if it happens to be a clinical psychologist from Canada. See, the, the basic idea that I want us to understand here at the start is that we all need direction. We, we need rules for life. We need to be told how to live. We need to know what's right and what's wrong. We need to be told what to do and what not to do. And that is precisely what God does in these Ten Commandments or Ten Words. He gives his people a rule for life. And we need to keep reminding ourselves as we continue in this series on the Ten Commandments that these rules come after the good news of redemption. Think about it this way. God did not come to the people 
of Israel while they remained in slavery in Egypt and say, here are these ten commandments. Let me see you keep them, and then I will redeem you. That's not Christianity. And yet, sadly, that's precisely how a lot of people think about Christianity. God has these rules. He has these expectations. And if I follow them, or at the very least do my very best, God will love me and accept me. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is God saw an oppressed and helpless people in bondage and said, I hear your cry. I will redeem you because I love you. And when you are redeemed, when you're set free, forgiven, I am going to give you a new way to live. I'm going to teach you how to walk in the path of life. And so we've got to get this right as we begin this series on the Ten Commandments. Redemption is not the reward for obedience. But redemption is one of the great reasons for obedience. God sets us free so that we might live the new life he has saved us for, which he orders in the giving of the Ten Commandments. As we get started today, there are three things I want us to focus on. Um, First, the abiding significance of the Ten Commandments. And then secondly, the meaning of the first commandment. And then thirdly, the end of the law. So let's begin with the abiding significance of the Ten Commandments. It would be hard to exaggerate or overstate the importance of the Ten Commandments for God's people. Not only in scripture, but in history as well. But let's stick with scripture. Unlike any other Old Testament instruction... The Ten Commandments are given twice. They're repeated. Not only are they given at Mount Sinai, but they're repeated once again here as Israel is on the plains of Moab prepared to enter into the land. The giving of the Ten Commandments was marked with all kinds of divine highlighter to indicate its abiding importance and significance. That's what all of the overwhelming phenomenon is surrounding the giving of the law in general, and in particular, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, The the, uh, thunder and lightning, the voice that thundered, um, the trumpet that Exodus says grew louder and louder, fire that burned from the mountain into the heart of heaven, all of it served as a divine highlighter marking the significance of the giving of the law. Add to that, the Ten Commandments were etched in stone. They weren't written on papyrus. They were written down on stone, signifying its perpetual significance. This is not a time-bound cultural moral code. It is grounded in God's character and expresses the will of God for us in every age. And so the ten words remain in effect as long as time endures. Both Exodus and Deuteronomy also emphasize that unlike other parts of Scripture, the Ten Commandments were not written down by human hands. They were not only etched in stone, they were written by the very finger of God. 
to indicate its source and authority. And all of this, all of this, the pyrotechnics, the centrality of the law, the fact that the Ten Commandments were stored not only in the tabernacle, not only in the Holy of Holies, but in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And all the other things that I mention are meant to confirm that the Ten Commandments are a foundational word for God's people at all times. As Jesus declares in Luke 16, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And yet, and yet there are many professing believers and even pastors today who deny that the Ten Commandments have any authority whatsoever over Christians. So for example, popular pastor, perhaps you've heard of him, Andy Stanley, writes in his book titled Irresistible. This is, this is a word-for-word quote, okay? The Ten Commandments have no authority over you. None. He goes on, to be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. I don't know what you make of those words, but I find them to be some of the most chilling words that I've read or heard in recent times. And they're written by a pastor. It's hard to imagine a more flagrant example of the false teaching that we know as antinomianism, being against God's law. And friends, the reason I'm, I'm taking time to talk about this is because the danger of this false teaching today is very real. In a 2017 survey of U.S. pastors, Andy Stanley was identified by Outreach Magazine as one of the 10 most influential pastors in America today. That was 2017, and he wrote this book the following year in 2018. Arguably one of the 10 most influential pastors in America says things like, Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Brothers and sisters, if you hear a pastor saying something like that, you ought to stop listening to him. If you have a pastor that says something like that, you need a new pastor. Think about how much Stanley's comments contradict what Jesus himself said. When he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the idea there is bringing to its fullest meaning. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so we need to start here in this series on the Ten Commandments by recognizing that the ten words that the Lord gave from Sinai have abiding significance for us today. They remain an authoritative expression of the will of God for our lives. The abiding significance of the Ten Commandments. Let's go to the first commandment now and think about the meaning of the first commandment. A couple of weeks ago, you remember when we looked at the introduction 
to the Ten Commandments, we, we saw how Moses emphasized the priority of grace, the power of grace, the personal nature of grace, as well as the purpose of amazing grace. We see that the Ten Commandments were never given as a means of accomplishing our redemption. They are very specifically given to people who have already received redemption as a free gift from God. You've got to be led out of Egypt before you can keep the Ten Commandments. And that's why the Lord reveals himself first as Israel's liberator before he reveals himself as Israel's lawgiver. That's That order, it is absolutely essential. God identifies himself as a liberator before he lays down the law. But make no mistake about it, Israel's liberator and Israel's lawgiver is one and the same Lord in whom and through whom and to whom we are freed to be bound. Freedom isn't about just getting out of slavery. It's about being set free to serve a new master. Now notice how the first commandment begins. The first word of the first commandment is you. It's not what you'd expect if you think of the Ten Commandments as just this kind of old crusty legislation. It begins with personal address in the second person singular, you. So not, not simply y'all or yins, but you, 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 and, and me. It's speaking to each one of us individually and personally, and we need to feel the weight of that. We need to feel the pressure of that kind of direct address. The Lord addresses each of us personally here. And he does so because this commandment is intended to penetrate and expose the idols of our hearts. Now literally, the first commandment says in seven Hebrew words, in effect, there shall not be for you another God before my face. Shall not be for you another God before my face. Before my face means in my presence. And specifically, in my presence in the sanctuary. King Manasseh, king who had come years later, flagrantly violated this commandment when he placed an idol in the temple before the face of the Lord. And you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 21. But of course, God's people were not free to worship other gods outside of the tabernacle or later the temple. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, says that Israel's leaders constructed shrines within their hearts to house their idols and that they hauled those idols along with them when they came before the Lord into his presence. And think about it, the new covenant just intensifies this for us. Jesus Christ dwells in our hearts by the Spirit who consecrates us, our bodies, as temples, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And you see what that means? That means that the idols of our hearts are as blatantly before the face of the Lord as Manasseh's. But what exactly does it mean to have a God? I think that's an important question. You shall have no other gods before me. What does it mean to have a God? Martin Luther is really helpful here. 
Martin Luther, reflecting the positive aspect of the commandment, says the first commandment requires us to fear, love, trust, and we could add obey God above all things. Fear, love, trust, and obey God above all things. The Lord alone, in other words, is our judge, our savior, and our lawgiver. But when we tremble before other judges, when we trust in other saviors, when we obey other lawgivers, when we pile up our sins on anyone but Jesus and listen to other voices, then idols occupy our hearts and reign over us. So let me ask you some questions. Do you fear, do you fear the opinion of others? Are you controlled by the opinion of others, how others perceive you and their judgment of you? Are you constantly worried about how your parents or others assess you? If so, it's very possible that you have, you have set up an idol, a substitute judge, whether it's public opinion or perfectionist parents. Or have you ever thought, if, if only I had a little bit more money, if only I was just a tad bit more wealthy, if I could just have that home of my dreams that is perfectly decorated in the ideal location, then I would be content. If so, it's very possible you're looking to a counterfeit savior, money and what it can buy you. And you remember the teaching of our Lord Jesus, it's not possible to serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Or do you ever have trouble admitting when you're wrong? Is it really hard, impossible even, to just admit your sin to others? And what's your default response when you're cornered, when you're found out? Do you quickly blame others? Do you heap your sins upon your spouse? You know, she made me do it, or he made me do it. Or you blame your kids, so you just don't understand how difficult it is to get on with them. Do you create false scapegoats, placing your sins on the back of others? Or do you flagellate yourself in light of your failures? Another line of questions we ought to ask ourselves is whose commands do you obey? Does the moral voice in your head come from pop culture, from Netflix, from Hulu, from YouTube, from social media? Another way of asking the question is, who is your true Lord? And I don't mean simply your confessed Lord. I mean, when the moral voice in your head says, do this, and the voice from Sinai says, don't do that, which voice do you obey? If you ignore or silence the voice of the Lord, it's because there's an idol speaking in your ears. But the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods. You see, the heart, the essence of the first commandment is that the Lord our God, who has brought us out of bondage and slavery, demands our total allegiance. Our wholehearted loyalty. 
Now, one of the things to, to notice here is that was utterly unprecedented at the time when God spoke out of the fire giving this command. None of the other gods prohibited polytheism. No other god demanded exclusive devotion or allegiance, but the God of Israel was utterly unique in his exclusivity. Unlike the territorial deities who are essentially specialists in different areas, the God of Israel revealed himself to be God over all of it. You see, with the gods of the nations, you had the gods of war, you had the god of love, you had the god of the mountains, the god of the valley, the god of the waters, the god of fertility, and on and on and on it went. But the god of Israel is God over all of it, and he will brook no rivals. One of the most clarifying examples of God's universal lordship in Israel's history can be found in 1 Kings chapter 20, where the Lord gives Israel victory in battle over the Syrians because the Syrians dared to attribute a previous victory that had taken place in a mountainous region to their assumption that, oh, well, they, they worship the God of the hills. That's why they won that fight. And so we read in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 28, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore I will... Give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. See, God will not tolerate being thought of as one God alongside a pantheon, pantheon of other deities, because he is Lord over all, the hills and the valleys and everything else. I think another thing we need to appreciate this about this commandment and I think this is probably something we haven't thought about very much is just how liberating how freeing this commandment really is now we got to start here and say do not make the silly mistake of thinking that because we live in a modern culture that we have done away with idols we manufacture and create just as many idols as any age in the history of the world. And in a world where there are so many different gods demanding a piece of us, it is vitally important to appreciate how freeing this commandment truly is. I don't think we're prone to think that way about God's rules, but in the keeping of this commandment, true liberty is found. Think about it, when life is divvied up, when life is divided into all these different areas presided over by different idols, different masters, all demanding a piece of us, then we inevitably find ourselves being pulled in a thousand different directions. We get, we get torn apart. That's what serving idols does to you. It rips you into shreds. You end up feeling like uh, too little butter spread over too much bread, as Bilbo said. But the reality that there is one God who demands our undivided devotion is truly liberating. In the keeping of this command, we are freed from the, from the tear-you-apartness of idolatry when we worship one true God, our, our hearts can be singularly 
devoted, our desires focused, and we can be made whole again. And so the first commandment is a unifying command. It's a liberating command. And it also alerts us to the good news that there actually is someone who is worthy of our wholehearted, unbridled, unrestrained worship and passion and devotion and allegiance and obedience. I mean, let's, let's face it, in one way or another, we, we, want, we want to give ourselves away. We want to live for something bigger than ourselves. We, we want to have our lives have a purpose. And this commandment reminds us that the creator of heaven and earth, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, he is worthy of all-out, unbridled, unrestrained commitment. Isn't that wonderful news? Isn't that good news that there is someone worthy of our lives, the creator of heaven and earth? And taking that idea a step further, the truth is that there is nothing else, there is no one else who can sustain that kind of devotion. There's no one else who can sustain the kind of complete devotion the first commandment requires. Think about it. If you, if you give yourself to something else, it'll eat you up. If you live for money and what it can give you and think that your security and satisfaction is found there, you will never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and bodily allure, you will always feel inadequate. You will always be comparing yourself to someone who's more attractive. And when time and age begins to impose itself, you will die a thousand deaths. If you live for knowledge, you'll always feel dumb. If you live for power, you'll always feel weak. If you live for pleasure, you're, you're always, at the end of the day, going to find yourself thinking, is, is that really all there is? Is that the best? If you live to be wanted and desired by another person, you'll always be left feeling empty. We could just keep going and going and going because idols always break the hearts of their worshipers, as C.S. Lewis puts it. Only God is worthy and can sustain the devotion demanded by the first commandment. At the end of the day, friends, all of the emptiness and fragmentation in our lives is ultimately due to our having other gods before this God. And so we really should crush our idols and tear down our high places. The only thing that can really satisfy is the one true God. The one true God who has given the all-consuming devotion that he demands. I wonder if you heard that. The one true God who demands our all-consuming devotion is the same God who has rendered 
that demand, who has met that demand for all-consuming devotion. God has done that in his Son, Jesus Christ. The first commandment demands total, absolute devotion. And that demand has been met in Jesus Christ. He has offered up the all-consuming devotion that we owe to God, and he has done everything that uh, vertically to God, but, but also horizontally for us as the people he is leading out of bondage. He has met the righteous requirement of the law. And that is the only thing that can satisfy God. That is the only thing that can satisfy the righteous demands of the law. We can't satisfy his standards, but Christ our Redeemer has done it for us. But you see, what I've been saying is the commandment also teaches us that the Lord is the only one that will satisfy you. He alone can sustain the absolute devotion that's demanded here. You know, one of the things that we're going to see again and again as we go through the commandments together is that God's law has different uses in the Christian life. It it is a rule of life for the redeemed. But it is also a mirror for us to look into. Truth of the matter is we don't always see ourselves clearly, do we? We don't always accurately assess ourselves, but when we look into the mirror of God's law, we see what we're really like. It shows us what we're really like. The law exposes the fact that we are idolaters, that we're blasphemers, that we're Sabbath breakers, insubordinate, murderers, adulterers, liars who are so deeply discontent because we have exchanged the glory of God for other things. And this ought to drive us to Christ who Paul calls the end of the law to everyone who believes. And that's the last thing I want us to think about for a few moments. Christ, the end of the law. And it's important to understand that there is more than one sense in which Christ is the end of the law. I think Paul has a specific sense in mind in Romans chapter 10, 4 when he says that. But there's more than one way Christ is the end of the law. Christ has brought an end to the civil and ceremonial administration of the law under the old covenant types and shadows because he's fulfilled all of these things. He's fulfilled the sacrificial system. He's fulfilled the, the, the temple. Christ has brought an end to the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He's brought an end to the penalty of the law because the penalty was poured out on him. He's also fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. But that is not all. As Calvin Calvin says about Romans 10.4, I want you to listen to this. He says, Christ is the end of the law in the sense that every commandment points to him. We are therefore to apply the law to him. But we cannot do this unless we are stripped of all self-righteousness and seek unmerited righteousness in him alone. See what Calvin's saying? Calvin's point is that the law in all of its parts has reference to Christ, and therefore no one will be able to truly fully understand the law who does not constantly relate it to Jesus Christ. And this is what I hope we'll do as we explore the Ten Commandments together. Along the lines of the first commandment, Christ not only refused to have no other gods before 
his God. He is God and he revealed what it is truly, what it truly means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, which is the positive side of the first commandment. There's one more way I want, I think we ought to reflect on the first commandment with reference to Jesus Christ. In the, in the book of Deuteronomy, what is forbidden and what is required by the first commandment is often spoken about in terms of following. Of not following after false gods and following after the Lord alone. At its heart, the first commandment is about following. Not following after idols, but following after the Lord. And this is language that's used very often, not only in the book of Deuteronomy, but throughout the Old Testament. It should sound familiar when prophets warn, you know, don't follow after idols, the gods of the nations, follow the Lord alone. And so, for example, when the prophet Elijah confronted the people of Israel about their worship of Baal, he stated the issue in first commandment terms, in 1 Kings 18, verse 21. If the Lord is God... Follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. It's a clear either or. And this is how Deuteronomy repeatedly explains and unpacks the meaning of the first commandment. So listen, listen to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4, how it describes what is required by the first commandment. The Lord your God, you shall follow. So what does that mean? What does it mean to follow the Lord? Him alone you shall fear, his commandments you shall keep, his voice you shall obey, him alone you shall serve, and to him you shall hold fast. Five things explaining what it means to follow after the Lord. So following the Lord means fearing the Lord alone, keeping his commandments, listening to his voice, serving him, and holding fast to him. Now what's striking about all of this, I think, is when we come to realize that the first commandment is really at the very heart of Jesus' call to be his disciple. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. What is, think about it in these terms. Jesus is the Lord. <laughs> He is God come in our flesh. He is Yahweh come to save. And when we meet him in the Gospels, what does he repeatedly say to those whom he is calling? Follow after me. Follow me. Again and again, Jesus calls disciples to follow after him, to forsake all else and follow after him. And if we understand the call to follow Jesus in terms of Deuteronomy 13, verse 4, then it means trusting, fearing him alone, keeping his commandments, listening to his voice, serving him, and holding fast to Christ who is our life. See, Jesus' call in the gospel is to give ourselves wholly and entirely and completely to him and his way, to have no other gods, to trust him alone, to follow him alone, to listen to his voice 
alone to serve him as Lord and to hold fast to him who is our life. Jesus demands our exclusive devotion because he is the Lord who redeems his people from their sins. And so I'll end by asking you the question, are you you keeping the first commandment? Ironically, keeping the first commandment for us as sinners means starting with the recognition that we have not kept the first commandment. That's what repentance is all about. It's recognizing before the Lord, Lord, I am an idolater. I have had other gods before your face. I've trusted and served them. I've listened to their commands. I've thought foolishly that my security and satisfaction is found in serving them. But by your grace and through the gospel, I've come to see that Jesus Christ is Lord, who saves his people from their sins because he has met the righteous requirement of the law. He has suffered the penalty of the law for my sake. He has kept the commandments perfectly with a pure heart and clean hands. And so I am trusting in him alone as my righteousness. And now, since I have been set free, I want to serve him. I want to hear his voice alone as I cling to Christ, who is my life. You see, dear friends, at the end of the day, the first commandment leads us to confess Jesus Christ is Lord, my Redeemer, and holding fast to him. I am following after him in all of my life. May God give us the grace to make that kind of confession from the bottom of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you that you are a God of redemption, that you rescue helpless sinners and bring them out of darkness and bondage, and you bring them into a good and spacious place, and we thank you that you have given your law to continue to show us our need for grace and drive us to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and renewal. And we thank you that you've given your law to direct our steps and the path of life. We pray that you would strengthen us, Holy Spirit, that we might serve none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and follow after him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.